Welcome back, Pocket Change listeners. Today is going to be a deep and insightful conversation. We have with us Brent Moore, who's PhD, uh, Director of Clinical Mental Health Counseling at Indiana Wesleyan University. Brent also has a private practice where he works with children and adolescents with attention and focus issues and is also a practitioner who supports dyslexia assessments. Welcome, Brent. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, I think you and I met on LinkedIn. I think it was one of those really bizarre hashtag social Saturdays posts. And we just kind of cross-pollinated and, and connected from there. Seems like we have a lot of overlapping interests uh, between uh, the psychology and behavioral aspects of moving people forward uh, through change and and uh, going through the process of change. And um, you do that more, it seems like, on the, the business side of the organizational side. And um, I do more probably interpersonal um, change to help people in the counseling setting doing therapy. Yes, that's exactly it. And, you know, I think it's such a it's such a hot topic right now. And, you know, I guess my curiosity is it's interesting. I recognize my daughter just graduated from high school in May of this year. And one of the things that I recognized was how many young people are moving towards psychology or sudden type of counseling and therapeutic background. Are you noticing that in the numbers in your classes? Yes, absolutely. So I teach graduate counseling. Uh, so the the individuals that I teach are they've already had their undergraduate degree. They're going back to do a master's in of arts and and uh, counseling. And specifically, I teach clinical mental health counseling. But I do notice the numbers have been rising over the years. So there's been this sort of resurgence. I think as we've seen more athletes and people in. Uh, Hollywood or influencers who are more willing to come out with their own stories and their own narratives about mental health playing a part in their lives and how that's shaped them um, to be who they are. Um, there seems to be less stigma around the conversation of mental health and more people coming out to say, this is what's happening in my life. Um, and it's it's either good or bad or indifferent, this is what's going on in my headspace, and I either need help with that or uh, some encouragement with it. Um, counseling takes more of a wellness perspective, so I think that um, there's some attraction to playing to people's strengths when they go into the counseling field, as opposed to maybe more of a traditional uh, psychology. So there's a difference between psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists. And I think some people get the three mixed up and even social workers get thrown into the mix. So there's uh, a turf war that, that sort of happens. It's happened uh, probably inconsequentially just over the years. Uh, people have fought for their own uh, identity in those different spaces. And so counseling is just one of the many different fields where people can get help uh, on a therapeutic level. Um, but yeah, I do notice that our numbers, even at the school that I work at, have just risen steadily over the years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you and I had a, have, we've had a number of conversations and, uh, you know, the last time we actually got together, first time we actually had a face conversation, well, I air quotes, face to face. Uh -huh. um, so you were you were talking a little bit about the story of how you got involved and why you chose this life path. And I just thought that it was so interesting because, you know, the background of who you are as a person is your parents are both educators. 
Yes, exactly. So I, I grew up on a college campus. I can remember the bus dropping me off at a 7-Eleven for some of those who may remember the 7-Elevens or have those around, uh, but a, a, a gas station and convenience store. And then I would walk across the street to the, the college campus that they both worked on. And I would um, pour myself a glass of Tang, if that dates me a little bit, and then uh, also get out the the big floppy disks, you know, that, that looked like um, waffles, you know, and you put it into the Apple II computer and and shut the, the 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 disk lock and and I would play video games in their office and, and that sort of thing. And so I, I really came to learn uh, to respect what they did as a profession and shaping the minds of young people and helping them really do more than just, uh, I would say, um, sharpen their minds, but there's something that happens, and you may notice this from your daughter's time with um, higher education, is that it really shapes you in a traditional way. So people change uh, very qualitatively in holistic ways, not just um, gaining knowledge. I think it's interesting because we can gain knowledge on the internet uh, and get the facts and data that we need uh, just by doing simple keystroke research. But I think that when you go to college, there's something different that happens uh, qualitatively in the life of a person to make them um, maybe ask better questions, become critical thinkers, and that sort of thing. It really interested me. And so that's what led me down to the path of becoming a, an educator. That's fantastic. It's it, and and how long did you actually go to school, right? Because I mean, you've got a PhD. You're actually an educator now. You you work in a clinical setting with with individuals. I think that the path to higher education can be really really intimidating, especially when someone's going through a transition of life. You know, moving from whether it's you know coming out of high school and moving into that higher education space, or maybe it's even as an adult realizing, hey, there's more in this world and I don't have to be roped to whatever job that I've kind of strapped myself to. Mm -hmm. I see that there's different camps that, that sort of form in different places. And I'll just use LinkedIn as an example, that there are people that, that take the mindset that we don't need higher education as much as we used to rely on it, right? Because we have Again, we have the data at our fingertips, and so we can learn from other people who post material. We can learn from open source um, places of higher education like edX, for example. Um, we can get the information we need, so why do I need the degree? And and so I think that there's this push of, of really questioning why, why go to higher education? What's the point of going through all of the hoops? Um, in some cases, you have to go through those hoops in order to land the job. Uh, it's just expected. But to answer your first question, I feel like I've been in school my whole life. You almost need to love, love school in order to be an educator because you're always refining yourself and, and learning more about what is truth and what is um, what is the good life as, as the, the, the philosophical uh, sort of line of thinking would go of, of how do I get to this place? I, I did just briefly tell you my story and my route. I went to undergrad where my parents taught, so it was kind of a good mix uh, being able to go straight from high school into a place that I, I lived near and go to school there 
because I knew a lot of the the people that graduated from high school went to the same college. It's called Mid American Nazarene University in Kansas City, and uh, I majored in psychology and theology. And I was really interested in the mixture of the two. How do the two go together? So then I did a master's in clinical psychology from Wheaton College. From there, I fell in love with the biological side of the brain and functioning and biology and and, uh, was really interested in health psychology. So I did a PhD in health psychology. Um, I thought I was going to do brain research after that. And then I've, I've sort of explained this to you when we've talked in the past of while I was working on my dissertation, our second daughter became ill and sick with brain cancer. And it was at that juncture in my life that I thought, I don't know that I want to be stuck in a lab for my whole life. I think I belong back in this path of being relational and being with people. And if I am fortunate enough to be in a life review stage, like I'm able to say I spent that time with people and helping them. So I ended up going back into counseling, which is what the clinical psychology degree was in my master's work. Um, and so that's that's um, a short answer of the education uh, background, which ended up being quite exhausting. So I'm sorry. No, no apologies. I mean, that's why we're here. We want we want the story. And, you know, that's what our listeners love is they love to hear about the things that you've endured and the changes that you've gone through. And I think, you know, the the change of having a child become ill, um, you know, is probably one of the most profound things that you can experience in your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. It brings up this uh, topic of resiliency and what leads people to be resilient. I went through the training in uh, my higher education experiences about what is depression, what constitutes anxiety, and I had difficulty relating to those very, very common disorders. Uh, But once my daughter got sick, I felt um, depression for the first time, like real clinical major depression. I felt anxiety for the first time. Um, And so I think it really helped me empathize with others and understand what they're going through. And then it also leads me to feel compassion, which I would define compassion as walking alongside someone else. So it led me to want to be compassionate towards others or walk with them in their own discomfort or um, uh, difficult circumstances. And, uh, you know, I think people either rise to the occasion when it comes to exhibiting resiliency or they don't rise to the occasion. And it's tough to to tell uh, what predisposes one to be able to rise to the occasion and not rise to the occasion. I don't know that I've quite figured that out from a um, research perspective of like what characteristics or dispositions lead a person to be resilient when they need to be versus not resilient. Maybe you have some thoughts on that too, and some of your own research that that you've done. Um, I think it's really interesting knowing that uh, we all respond to those types of stimuli differently and what leads some people to thrive while other people just struggle to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. It's, you know, in, in the work that we do in, in our organization, is, it's very unique, right? I mean, I think change management is change management. We get this toolkit, we tick the box and, you know, we manage the change. We have a communications plan, we have a training plan, and everyone's just going to accept the change, right? And I think 
in in theory, that sounds great. But when you actually start to apply like a change leadership or you start to apply mental health focus when it comes to change and we look at the, the throes of change that society was going through, even just with technology prior to COVID, and now post-COVID and going through COVID, I think we've seen um, a deterioration of the mental well-being of our society as a whole. And I think when we talk about resiliency, you're right, I have I have hit points that I, I tend to lean into. And a lot of that comes to the foundations of who we are. And the way that I've described it to our clients when we do our resilient leader workshop is, you know, I say that every baby when they're born is born with this perfect foundation, right? And you think about it, and it's this beautiful concrete, no cats have walked across it, nobody's etched their initials in it. And, you know, Brent was not there, um, you know, and, and this beautiful baby is just put down on there. And I think that, you know, when we are born, from the day we're born, our resiliency skills start to form based off of all of our environmental conditions. Were we born to a healthy family? Were we put up for adoption? Were we living in a nursery because we were born early? Um, were we born addicted to drugs, right? I mean, like there are so many different areas of the spectrum that automatically start someone's foundation. And, you know, some people, a baby who's born, you know, addicted to drugs, has a broken foundation before they're even out of the womb, right? And then you have a child like I would I would say my own, where the conditions were absolutely perfect. She squeaked and I was leaning over her going, oh my gosh, it moved. It made noise, right? I was actually terrified of her for the first three um, but you know we look, we look at this and and you know i always say that it's like we we have these masons these people who come and they fix those little fractures a baby cries someone picks it up they feed it that that fracture no longer exists that pain is gone and so we learn a problem solving process right off the bat and so if i cry someone picks me up right you have these people who say your baby's spoiled you know what i will spoil that child until the day i die because that's literally what i want to do that's why i have it right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so when we think about that, and then you, of course, you look at the research and the studies that that speak to us about our self confidence. Self confidence is one of those things that comes between the ages of four and twelve. Is when like lifetime self confidence tends to be formed. And so, what happens within those those years is what carries us until we're the most self confident in our entire lives, which is sixty, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't get it anymore, right? So. Um, well, at least that's what I think. But, um, you know, when it really comes down to it, I think that our responses in the moment and the way that we were raised and the way that we were reared and the way that people behaved with us when we made mistakes was um, it is a really big foundation for how resilient we are and how confident we are to meet our own needs or request the support for our own needs. And and I think that it's, um, I don't think that there's a perfect condition for it. I don't know that I've met somebody 100% resilient 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, my mind goes to attachment research as you're talking and what leads people to experience a certain attachment style of you know, secure, disorganized, or um, just, you're, you're, you know, there's th- four different attachment styles. And those are formative stages, the, the, what you're talking about at the beginning of life when a parent's either going to pick up a child when they're crying or they're not. And that sort of forms or shapes uh, the way that we uh, interact with the world. And so there's the still face experiment with Ed Tronic. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but where the mom uh, pays attention to the baby and there's the, very much this reciprocal process that happens between mother and and baby. And then she just goes flat affect on the child and the child makes bids for um, communication and a 
connection. And that ends up you know, starting with play, but mom doesn't respond. And then it turns to crying, and then mom doesn't respond. Then it turns into this really chaotic experience of just wailing and and really losing control of body function and being very dysregulated and uncomfortable. And then mom shows presence again to the baby and everything uh, goes back to the way that uh, it should be in a secure attachment. But with that, I think that adults even act out in similar ways to that, right? Where um, uh, when you're doing couples counseling, um, there's one partner who doesn't respond well and what happens? The other person may try to make bids for attention and act out and try to get that person to pay attention. Um, it's just the, the the overlap is really interesting, I think, between those formative years that you're talking about and where we move into with our relationships interpersonally with people later. And I also think about like the ACEs score, uh, the ad- adverse childhood experiences and how those play a part maybe even in our resiliency uh, later on down the road. Um, and even affect uh, self-efficacy and, and like I can do something attitude and mindset versus I can't do something or maybe I, I can't do it yet. Uh, it also affects uh, mindset. But so, yeah, it's, it's such a complicated experience, but I don't think I ever would know where I am on that resiliency scale unless I went through something difficult like I did. Right. So I had almost face this demon in order to know uh how I would respond to it. It, it. It's all theoretical and hypothetical until you actually live the experience. And having gone through that lived experience, I think it changed me in a way that um, I wouldn't take it away for anything. Um, you know, I, I think that that um, obviously I wish my daughter was still here today, but um, the way that I responded and the way that I worked through that, I learned so much about myself through that experience. Yeah, and and you know, uh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I think it's you know, probably the most devastating thing a person can experience is the loss of a of a child. And you know, no matter how how much time passes by, I don't think it ever goes away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This it's um you know just just to hark back to that it's it's been about 11 years and um i think the time has helped the passing of time has helped but at the same time um, you don't want people to forget right and so there's always these times that people will reach out with text messages or um, phone calls and say hey i was just thinking about marley marley was her name so uh and that that's really touching because it shows that people still care and they still think about her yeah, and that's special, you know. There's, I don't know if you listen to. Uh, I'm a big fan of Macklemore, and he has this song. And one of his songs is, you know, they say we die twice. The first one is when they bury you, and the second time is the last time that somebody utters your name. And I just like that. That lyric for me is such a powerful lyric because it says two things. Number one is it's possible to still live on through the people that we've affected and impacted, even if it was only for a a very short period of time, you know, two, three years, like your little one. Um, But I look at, you know, we just lost my father in November of 2020, and it was expectedly unexpected, I guess, is what Mm -hmm. I would say. And um, but the man was a legend and he worked in case management in a jail for 25 years. The, mm. the number of 
prophets he affected were astronomical. Um, but he was a single father for 21 years, didn't date or anything, raised two little girls in the North all on his own, and was a giving, loving, compassionate, caring, considerate individual, despite the work and the people that he interacted with on a daily basis. And I think, you know, talking about him and sharing stories and giving people the opportunity to see him through my eyes is um, probably one of the best gifts that I can give him because what he did was he invested 40 years of his life into teaching me lessons and building my resilience and giving me the best life he possibly could despite all of the circumstances around him. And that's powerful. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing um, that story about your father. I mean, that, that is, um, I think it's special to be able to have these, like they're sacred moments that we share with each other. Right. And, and so just being able to be a part of you talking about your experience with him and the way that he's molded you and shaped you into the person that you are, and then you go on and affect other people because of that. And I think those are really powerful moments. So, um, it, it leads me to about um, my my own legacy, your legacy, what we leave to other people. I think that I started to think about that a lot more in the second half of my life. So I'm 44 years old, and I can remember having a distinct midlife crisis at 40 of like, what what am I doing now? And and feeling a sense of restlessness almost of like we've used the first part of our life to sort of train, get ready, figure adulthood out. Um, you sort of carve out a path and you're headed one direction. And then all of a sudden you realize your life is is possibly half over. Who knows how long we're going to live, but we are all, all on borrowed time. We do know that's for sure. So making the most out of every day has been um, a really significant aspect of of um, this latter part of my life. And so I don't know if you experience that in your your work that you do, but um, man, I just think about what does it look like to leave a legacy and am I doing that now and how can I better do that, uh, you know, in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do, I, I do see that quite a bit in, in the work that I do, whether it's, um, it, it's oftentimes it's not overt, like people don't know that that's what's causing their restlessness. And I think that's such a great word that you use there is that there's this restlessness of am I doing enough? Am I leaving enough? And what does that look like? And, you know, I say it on almost I'm almost positive. I say it on every podcast, but I've never seen a U-Haul following a hearse before. And so you know, it is. What are we leaving behind? And what's the story of who we are? And does that mean that we have monuments named after us or streets or schools or hospitals? No, 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 no. That's not what it means. Because those people, while very important and probably have a lot of money or, you know, go out and do really grandiose things, that's that's necessarily needed. And it's theirs. But what do we do? And how do we impact other people around us. And, you know, I, I, I think back again to the outpouring of love. I don't think I have ever talked on the phone as much as I did in the days around my father's passing. It was absolutely insane to me, the people that came out of the woodwork, people from England, people from Australia, all over Canada, the United States, um, people who didn't even know him, who mm -hmm. just knew him through me because I, my dad and I were super, super tight. And, mm -hmm. You know, that legacy that he left behind, he was not a wealthy man. You know, he was mm. we were dirt poor most of our upbringing where I, I kid you not, there were times when we were eating squirrels 
squirrels that he dredged in evaporated milk and flour because that's what we could afford was mm-hmm. you know a slow a squirrel's noggin and and not really he always had ammunition let's not kid ourselves the man had gun. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so you, you look at that and you think about what is the legacy that i'm leaving behind and I, I i think about that all the time i think about when i go to the grocery store am i kind to that person who's ringing me out at the checkout because if i'm the only bright light in their day during a busy holiday season and everybody else has treated them like trash or has disregarded them hey you know what i've done my job right? It doesn't have to be like we're going out and we're doing these big, huge, enormous things. I don't even need to be recognized. I don't want to be recognized. I just want to know that at the end of the day, when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I have been the best version of me that I could possibly be. And, you know, it brings me to, you know, people ask me all the time, what books do you read? Well, I don't read all that often. I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I used to drive quite a bit. Um, but the one book that absolutely altered my existence and changed my life was The Four Agreements. Whether you believe the, you know, the full narrative around it or not, but The Four Agreements in and of themselves are absolutely beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And, it, mm-hmm. you know, how, how kind are you being with your word? Are you trying your best every single day? Um, you know, don't take things personal, whether it's the positive mm-hmm. or the negative. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. Being stoic is hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that that brings on this whole piece of living purposefully. And and I wonder uh, to what degree is that missing from people's lives? And to what degree do people need to hear that message even today on this podcast of like, uh, or whenever this is being listened to asynchronously, like, what is your purpose in life? Are you being purposeful about living the way that you deem important? Uh, and, and that takes energy. And I think that we spend a lot of time in those formative years that we were talking about earlier, um, learning certain subjects like math and you know English in my case and and history and science and all of these other things. But are we learning to live with purpose? And that goes back to hopefully, hopefully, what's happening in the college experience and maybe even in some of the graduate experience is it's not just about information gathering and it's not just about taking exams. It's not just about writing papers, but it's also learning how to ask big questions and how to understand those bigger questions of purpose in life. And that that gets into more of a philosophical um, question of, of, of purpose and meaning and what makes what makes the life good. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time, energy, and effort trying to figure that question out as they go through life, and they end up acquiring things like you referred to. Uh, but in the end, it has a lot to do with purpose and and living a life that's purposeful. I I agree. You know, having the ability to wake up in the morning and have something to look forward to is is a, an exceptional gift, right? Whether that's whether it's, you know, an individual, whether it's an animal, whether it's a job, whether it's a career, whether it's uh, an event, whatever, right? But I think that, you know, it kind of brings us full circle back to, you know, when we think about depression. When we think about people who have extreme anxiety that chokes them and, you know, you might have purpose, but what do you do when you have purpose, but you have this cloud of, um, you know, depression that's holding you down like a weight on your chest? Like Mm -hmm. that 
is a very, very hard place to be. And I, I think a lot of people suffer in silence with that weight on mm-hmm. their chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that weight ends up being something that keeps people from the the drive that it takes to live out the purpose. I, I think in those moments where I felt most depressed, I felt purposeless. Uh, but there are instances, you're right, where people do know their purpose and they want to work that out, but they don't feel like they have the capacity to do that because of the the depression. And I think that people are doing a good job, relatively speaking, um, in the mainstream um, now of saying, we realize that depression um, is a, everything psychological, simultaneously biological. So there, there is this piece of um, neurochemistry that's not performing right in your brain, right? And so um, the medicine can be incredibly helpful. Um, so can talk therapy, so can exercise, so can diet. And so you know, so can even spirituality. So we we look at these different pillars of health and wellness to see you know, how can we make sure that we're living holistically and optimally. Um, I think another aspect about going through this issue with my daughter who was diagnosed with brain cancer is that they they did the surgeons neurosurgeon went in and try to remove as much of this tumor it was called a pilocytic astrocytoma they tried to remove as much of it as they could but it sat so close to her brain stem that uh, they couldn't remove it all and so when they did this major surgery um, that night she had a stroke because there was just too much trauma in her brain. So she was actually paralyzed then on one half of her body. And so I looked at all of the things that she had going on. She also had endocrine issues too, because of the the tumor where it was located. And you've got this person and, and my daughter who has brain cancer, she has a stroke. She has all of these endocrine issues that, that lead her to urinate like all the time. She has a Mickey button where she gets nutrients through her belly. And you say she's very limited in many ways. Um, and and she still finds ways to be happy during the day. Like how how do you have that sort of mindset? And and there are times that I look at myself in the mirror and I say I'm not dealing with a lot of those other things that she dealt with, but I think I have um, I hold myself to a higher standard in the morning because I do have health on my side. And I think a lot of people take their health for granted. Um, and so by looking at her and contrasting her situation with my situation, I realized that I'm really placed in an advantaged spot um, where there are those who are disadvantaged and their ability to move around. They still have the ability to determine if they're going to be happy or not. But it all goes back to brain chemistry, too. And is that set up in the right place? So I like to make sure that people are going to the doctor, their physician, to make sure that their uh, nutrient levels are where they need to be, like vitamins B and D and folate. Are they getting enough of that? Uh, But also um, knowing that there is serotonin, there's dopamine, there's norepinephrine, there's all of these different chemicals that influence the way that I feel and behave. Um, so sorry, there's a lot there to unpack, but um, those are just no, some of my initial thoughts. Well, I think that's great too. I mean, that's actually, you know, I work with a couple of individuals. I do a lot of pro bono one-on-one coaching um, with folks who just simply can't access mental health support. Um, 
And so that is one of the things that I work on with my coaching clients immediately is, you know, how are you sleeping? Sleep is like the key to everything. And I don't think people put the right emphasis on that. I mean, I'm a six and a half to nine hour a night kind of gal, but you know, you and I both were in that athletic realm, right? I mean, you're a runner. I think you're kind of off your rocker for that. What is it? You're good. <laughs> ultra that you just did a <laughs> yeah yeah I, I love to i love to run uh for sure but yeah keep going i'm uh, you're, you're good well uh yeah so i mean like we look at that and it's like the first thing that i do is i assess sleep how are you resting and once you're rested are you nutritioning properly what is your what is your water intake and i have this one client and he is we've been together i want to say almost we're, we're coming up on our three or four year uh, coachiversary is what we call it. We celebrate it together every February. And um, this fella is a single dude. He works in a warehouse, um, you know, does his own thing. Well, he quit smoking a couple of weeks ago. Uh, well, actually, now it's a couple months. And he picked up vaping instead. Just And I said, okay, well, you know, lesser of two evils. But gosh, you should see how this kid's life has changed. You know, he he's put 30 pounds on. And no, yeah, t- 35 pounds. 25 or 30 pounds in the past eight weeks of good, good weight. I mean, he was six foot three, six foot two and 130 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, so very, very slender. And the, the, the chemicals from the, from the, um, the cigarettes were obviously impacting him. He wasn't able to eat. He was drinking a lot of pop. He was eating a lot of fast food. Well, now he's, we're celebrating. He's up to six to seven glasses of water a day and no pop, maybe two pop a week because he's not buying cigarettes. And you know what I mean? So we're seeing these small changes. It's not that it's an all or nothing because I think the pendulum's probably one of the most dangerous things to somebody's health. And you would see that in and somebody who has some damaged or upset neurochemistry is that, you know, they go from here to here. And I'm not a proponent of that. If you're here, I want you to, you know, in a little swing over here, and then let's bring you down this way, and then let's move it forward. Because these wholesale things people try and make when it's like, okay, I'm just going to do everything. Well, if you try and do everything, nothing's going to stick because you, mm-hmm. you don't have enough time to build a habit. But that's the one thing that we realized was that his, um you know, he was working with a psychologist and he's on, you know, some some different medications for you know, some distractions, as well as some really, really heavy anxiety. But a lot of it comes back down to those attachment issues and the things from childhood. So then when you add those disrupted attachments from childhood, and then you have an upset neurochemistry, and then you go ahead and you have a lack of nutrition, a lack of sleep, and an introduction of foreign chemicals into the body, well, you have the perfect storm, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and it it leads me to ask the question, what was what led him to be ready for change? You know, so a person has to be ready for change in order for that change to happen, um, and that's kind of an interesting backstory to think about too, with with clients that you work with, or um, even as we think about just generally the human nature. We have to be ready for change in order for that to occur. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and for him, I think what it was was he's just tired of being tired and. You know, we have he he versions himself, right? He's 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 a technology guy. 
kind of guy. And, you know, he's on version 3.0 right now, which I think is fantastic, where he's looking back into the rearview mirror and he's able to actually say, like, this is where I was. And this is a really interesting exercise that I do with organizations and oftentimes with people as well. When they're having a very hard time seeing the progress that they've made, whether it's incremental or very significant, such as this individual, I do something called the rearview mirror, where I take a piece of paper and we divide it into three, put two lines on it so you've got three sections. And it's an artistic activity and people love it. Um, and it's show me what you've done, where you were when we started working together. Draw me a picture and then draw me a picture of where we are right now in comparison to where we, we started. Now, draw me a picture of where you think we're going to be in six months. And it's really interesting to see how when somebody looks back into that mirror and they can see where they've been to where they are and seeing them articulate it through a visual or a drawing it's really very powerful i've had um i did an organizational redesign very early in my career when i first did this exercise and i actually uh, the the organization had been damaged through a reorg that was really really bad and one of the teams and this is a, a group of senior leaders one of the teams drew the titanic sinking they had like little stick bodies floating in the water they had the boat split in half they had people dying and drowning and they had like you know jack and rose on a you know on a on a board over <laughs> mm-hmm. board. <laughs> why leonardo dicaprio has trust issues with the age of life i didn't say it but <laughs> uh but then the, the the mid piece was we had been building a target operating model for this it organization they were all involved and so the next piece was they drew a a, a new ship and they had a new captain, but it had heavy, heavy artillery on the front of it. So they were feeling defensive is what I was taking from them. Mm-hmm. And then the third drawing of where we were going to be in the next six months was a globe with repeatable ports of entry and, uh, you know, where this boat was going to go. And so it, what it showed me from a visual perspective was, first off, they were really damaged when we first got there. And they were feeling included and, and taken care of in the new state. They knew that there was something there. They had a new captain, but they weren't feeling 100% certain about that. They didn't know that what they were being told was actually going to come to fruition. And then in the future, they saw that this process model that they were building, that they were accountable for, was something that was going to be possible to drive them into providing consistent, reliable, scalable service to the global organization that we worked for. And I thought, wow. Like that was such a a valuable articulation to me as a change leader, but also gave me such great insight into their mental headspace as to where they were, to where we were able to take them, where they were open to going, I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example of of, uh, just a roadmap of looking at where someone's been in the past or an organization where they are in the present moment and where they hope to be in the future, it seems like most of us move through life, many people do move through life in very much a reactive state. So rather than uh, being reflective and thinking about the past and where they've been and maybe even needing to grieve some of the the loss of the ship going down, that that we ignore those parts of our past. And, and I'm I, you know, I heard this term about a year ago, and it's really stuck with me, but it's called institutional memory. And institutions have memories about um, about people, places, and things that follow the institution. But because personnel change and because of um, lapses in communication, like that message doesn't get conveyed forward. And some people, you know, 
look at or view the organization in a particular way, and people are looking at the organization in different ways because of this institutional memory. So I think having people be on the same page about their own perspective of what's going on has got to be really powerful for organizations uh, as they think about uh, their values and their mission statements, how it correlates or doesn't correlate with how they've experienced the past, the present, and the future. But that that piece of re- reflective is reactive, um, I think, is really important uh, for, for individuals and for organizations. I agree. And, you know, it's it's interesting um, what you talk about with institutional memory. We actually, um, we do have something that we, um, that we, we call it in, in the industry, in the change industry, and that's the change memory. And um, I've got, I've got some blog posts that I've done, particularly in articles that I've written on change memory and how organizations or how change leaders can manage that change memory or change it, right? Because when we mm-hmm. think about what it is is we look at the, the 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 way that our memory actually works and how we how we visualize things and like you see that when you have those changes in personnel and you see people coming and going well that institutional memory only becomes what one or two people who stick around what their experience was and so it no longer becomes this fact base it becomes lore and it becomes a tale mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that what becomes the new narrative and then of course that then links back to the individual person and so is that person someone who i can trust is that person somebody who's giving me the actual facts or is it a passionate response to what they experienced because it was a very negative or a very positive experience right depending on where you Mm -hmm. sat in the organization the change was how involved you were um but it's it's a very very real thing and it is something that will crush a change program like that Mm -hmm. it's crazy Mm -hmm. yeah I'm sure it's so interesting to think about the ways that people's perceptions flavor their uh, their take on or their reality or their truth. And you've got all of these different people within an organization perceiving the organization in different ways, which really informs their perception of reality, which is their truth. And you get everybody in the same room and the same place together to talk about X, Y, or Z related to the the organization, and you've got all of these different opinions about what's going on or what's happening. And so I think it's really important for people to be able to be on the same page about that, which, uh, you know, you may have some strategies for doing that, but uh, it seems like that would be an important part of, of the, the model as well. Oh, 100%. This is, this is where the strength of a social network becomes a really, really powerful tool inside of a change program, right? I mean, and that's something that we're very well known for. We had one program that we were triaging uh, uh, an Oracle cloud implementation that had gone not so great. And um, it had really, it was on the tail uh, end of a really large departure program where employees were given the opportunity to choose to stay or leave. And about 50% of the people who were offered this departure accepted it. And so what you see is this mass exodus of people, a significant loss of information, an enormous unmanaged, unacknowledged grief process. Mm. And then we throw on this technology program. Mm. And so it's not, a, it, it became less about the technology program and more about triaging the people and making sure that the people were okay. And so this was, it was probably one of the most 
complex psychological programs of change that I've ever worked on because not only are you grappling with that, but you're also grappling with different levels of the organization from a warehouse to a C-suite. And then inside of that, you have generations of people. And then inside of that, you have class levels of people because you have somebody who's working in a warehouse making $35,000 a year. And then you have a C-suite person who's impacted by these same changes who has different priorities around these, who's making $2.5 million a year. And so those disparities are very well known, especially inside of a publicly traded company. So you take all of that and you put that in and they're like, go ahead and fix this, this uh, IT system. Mm -hmm. Well, well, good on you. Yeah, that's great on your team for recognizing that rather than um, moving through, because it would have been really easy to just push through and do what you were there to do with with implementing this system, but instead taking a step back and saying, we've got a bigger problem here that we need to remedy. Uh, and that is triage, right? Triage the company. Yeah. Well, and what was really great about this organization and, and, you know, was that they recognized that. And when we brought these concerns to them, they said, yeah, we recognize that we're not getting the potential out of this team or these teams. And they actually sent us around and we performed our resilient leader program 19 times in that organization. Wow. Right. They they sent me on a Canada-wide tour to triage and work with all of their warehouses. Like they genuinely cared about the impact that these people were feeling. And I just, I really respected that because, you know, yes, it was about a technology program. Yes, consultants are expensive. But what they did was they said, realize that in order to be able to move this forward, we need to take care of the people. And, you know, we did this with we did this with field teams. We did this with warehouses. We did this with finance. We did it with leadership. We did it with IT people. You know, you name it. And we had this conversation. And what was really cool about it was that we were able to actually draw lines that allowed everybody to feel heard and contribute to the program of change moving forward. And, you know, in that in that case, we, we had a lot of change memory to deal with. And in addition to that, we had five social networks that operated simultaneously in figure eights to, from a communication and engagement perspective. Mm-hmm. It was one. It was really, really great program. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Well, I mean, that bringing that back around and to resiliency, it sounds like that company was able to be resilient at a time with some sort of psychological and um, business parade. Continue with the metaphor of triaging. Uh, it seems like they were able to to make it through. Yeah, they were. Thank goodness. Awesome. So. We are uh, coming to the close of our our time together, Brent, and, you know, this has just been such a wonderful conversation. I don't know that this will be the last time that we have you on Pocket Change because there's so much to talk about. Um, But in closing today, if there was one key message that you would want to leave with our listeners today, um, what would that be? One key takeaway message I think that is helpful or useful from our time together is that narratives are important and it's important to be able to talk about your experience and i've really enjoyed the opportunity on podcast to just talk about my family some and talk about some of my professional life and be able to share some of the stories even bringing in and incorporating uh my daughter who's who's passed away just being able to share her story uh has been powerful for me personally uh but i feel so privileged because we were able to talk about so many different things in the short period of time that we had together that uh, I really feel like we could talk for hours, but uh, the time has come to a close. 
<laughs> well, listen, let's make sure that we make this happen again uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Let's have you back and let's talk about some of the things that we're seeing in our in our news and let's talk about some of the trends that we're seeing in psychology and um, in, in clinical counseling and therapy. Um, the things that we, we know our listeners are keen and aware to learn. I mean, we have a lot of um, people who follow us to pull those gems out and we have a lot of people who follow us and listen just to maybe take care of themselves a little better. Sure. Absolutely. That sounds like a plan to me. Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time. It has absolutely been our pleasure to host you, and I am very excited to have you back. Thank you. Thanks for your grace and and for for um, just who you are. I just appreciate the person that you are, Kate, and, and thanks so much. Thank you. And Pocket Change listeners, thank you for joining us and spending this time with Brent and myself today. We look forward to having you join us in our next episode. And as always, if you feel like there's content that we could cover or someone you'd like to see as feature, reach out. A call doesn't cost a thing. <laughs>